Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris DeGenier on Talk Show. It is Friday, May 27th, 2011. I was supposed to be on the um, Oracle Broadcasting Program, Toots Hertz, at 8 a.m. this morning, and due to a scheduling glitch, and, and through no fault of my own, it, it, it was postponed until Wednesday, this coming Wednesday at 8 a.m. There will be an announcement and another mailing from ChrisDeGenia.org, or, or actually ChrisDeGenia.net. Over the past few weeks, while discussing Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, we continued to see many of the clear connections between the Old Testament and the New, between the Old Testament writers and the teachings of Christ. They, they are truly but one book containing the same teachings for the same children of Israel. We especially saw that Yahshua Christ in his Sermon on the Mount was teaching many of those same precepts found in the ancient Hebrew literature for the most part in the Psalms and in the wisdom of Sirach, since the Sermon on the Mount has to do with interpersonal relationships among the children of Israel. Yet this does not lessen the importance of the mission of Christ one iota, Rather, it magnifies it all the more, since one, once one understands that this is the same God talking to the same people that he had once spoken to through the Old Testament prophets and through the law of Moses, as we see in Paul's epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We saw that the Sermon on the Mount was meant for Israelites only. The word neighbor... In the phrase, in Leviticus 19.18, which Christ refers to, which says, love thy neighbor as thyself, that word, which, that, that phrase which is, that word which is translated neighbor in the phrase, love thy neighbor, is ultimately derived from a Hebrew verb, which means to graze together. Therefore, it can only refer to the sheep. The Greek word for neighbor does not mean to refer to geographical proximity. There are other words for that. Rather, the phrase, tone placion, simply denotes, denotes one who is near to a person. With all of the other injunctions found in the law about the children of Israel being separate, and holy, which means separated and dedicated to the purposes of God. That's what holy means. That word can also only refer to the sheep and not to a wolf who is moved in nearby. This meaning is magnified where Yahshua tells his followers in Matthew chapter 7 not to share their pearls nor that which is holy with dogs, and with swine. That means we don't need to go preaching the word of God to aliens. That means we cannot share our covenants and our promises with aliens. 
there's not much more to that than that. That that can that can be elaborated on, but it shouldn't have to be. We don't preach the word of God to non-Israelites, to non-white Adamic people. We just don't do it. We don't go on radio programs and try to tell the truth to Negroes. That's throwing a pearl to the swine. It's totally useless. The Negroes can never receive the truth. They don't have the spirit of God. That this entire Sermon on the Mount message is therefore exclusive in the racial sense. There should be no doubt. Tonight we will cover Matthew chapters 8 and 9. I don't think there will be anything really groundbreaking. I'm not to say that the, any part of the gospel is mundane. It, it's just that these two chapters are fairly straightforward. Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. And upon his descending from the mountain, many crowds followed him. And behold, a leper coming forth worshipped him, saying, Prince, if you wish, you were able to cleanse me. And extending his hand, he touched him saying, I wish, or I will it to be so, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy had been cleansed. And Yahshua says to him, See that you speak to no one, but go show yourself in the temple and offer the gift which Moses prescribed for a testimony to them. There was a gift in the law that people were to make. There, there was an offering in the law that people were to make when they were cleansed of such a disease. While it is disputed that modern leprosy is the same disease as that which we see in the Old Testament, in ancient times those people who were lepers were cast out of the camp, the town, or the village, and they were left on their own, usually to die a miserable death because nobody wanted anything to do with them. In the Old Testament, at Numbers chapter 12, we see that Miriam herself, the sister of Moses, had spoken against Moses, and she was struck with the plague of leprosy. She was relieved of her plague after seven days, according to the word of Yahweh. But she spent those seven days as an unclean person outside of the camp. In, in 2 Kings chapter 7, we see four leprous men who were outside, they were stuck outside of the gates of Samaria, and they were portrayed in that account as having expected to die. Christ tells the disciples of John that his mission is true in these signs at Matthew 11:5, that the blind receive their sight and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. We have prophecies in the Old Testament that we have now. We have prophecies concerning the blind and the deaf in Isaiah. However, there is evidently nothing in the words of the book about which contains prophecies about lepers. In Isaiah 29:18, we read, And in that day shall the deaf 
the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. And Isaiah 35, 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. In, in other words, we have many prophecies concerning the blind, the deaf, and, and the mission of Christ, and his healing of blind people and deaf people was representative of his healing of the children of Israel through his gospel and through his sacrifice on their behalf. But we have no prophecy in the Old Testament that I could locate concerning the cleansing of lepers. It is my opinion that while the healing of lepers is not specifically prophesied of the ministry of Christ, and since contracting the disease of leprosy in the ancient world was so horrible a sentence of death, that Yahshua, having cleansed lepers, was actually symbolic of his mercy upon the children of Israel, that no matter how horrible the sentence of death, his promise, uttered through the prophets, was to cleanse them of all their sins. And as Isaiah 45:25 says, he promises to justify all of the offspring of Israel without exception, and no matter how grievously they have sinned. So I believe that the cleansing of lepers represents the gravity of his promise to cleanse our sins. I can't establish that with scriptures, but then again, many lepers were cleansed by Christ in the New Testament, and in our current Old Testament, we have no prophecy of scripture concerning that. So I, that's what I make of that. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. And upon his coming to Capernaum, a centurion came forth to him, summoning him and saying, Prince, my servant is a paralytic, stricken in the house, being tormented terribly. Paralysis is actually a Greek word, spelled the same exact way except for one letter, a U for the Y. The text still means today what it exactly, what exactly it inferred then, that there was a loss of motor skills in the person affected. A paralytic was a paralyzed person. For example, Ahenius in Acts chapter 9, verse 33, was a paralytic bedridden for eight years. Verse 7, And he, meaning Christ, says to him, I coming shall heal him. This account is also told at Luke chapter 7, where it is somewhat more complete. The centurion is definitely not a Judean. However, it is not certain that he is a Greek or a Roman either. The Roman army was constructed from men from all over the empire, and the Romans purposely used men from areas other than where they were stationed to decrease the likelihood of insurrection. This centurion may have been from any of the from one of any number of the white Adamic nations. Verse 8, but responding, the centurion said, 
Prince, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. But only say a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man appointed by authority, having under myself soldiers. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And hearing, Yahshua marveled and said to those following, Truly I say to you, no one from no one in Israel have I found such faith. Christ seems to mean Israel in the geographic sense here, or possibly in a sense which refers to those of Judea who had kept the law and the prophets. The word was used in that sense to mean only the people of Judea in several occasions. In, in, the, uh, in the New Testament. While we know that many Greeks, Romans, Celts, etc., Germans, Parthians, that they were indeed descended from the Israelites dispersed long before time, who had for the most part already forgotten their identity and their blindness, as Paul said in his epistle to the Ephesians, those people were alienated from the civic life of Israel, and therefore being divorced from Yahweh, they were not truly counted as Israel. As Hosea says, they were his people, but they were called not his people until the time that they would accept Christ and be reconciled to God. So while there's often disputes that this centurion um, could not have been an Israelite or Yahshua could not have said that, well, well we see that his people of the dispersion were not his people until the time of reconciliation. The reconciliation could not have happened until after his death. So whoever this centurion was, there's no doubt he was probably an Adamite, and, and it's almost certain he was an Adamic man because of the nature of the makeup of the Roman Empire. That's almost certain. But, but it's, um, he, doesn't, he, he may or may not have been an Israelite, a descendant of the Israelite dispersions, and it really doesn't matter. As Hosea says, the children of Israel of the dispersion were not recognized by Yahweh as children of Israel at this time. Not until the reconciliation. Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. I say to you that many shall come from the east and west, and they shall recline with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of the heavens. But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into the outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Psalm 107, let me read that from verses 1 through 3. Oh, give thanks unto Yahweh, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of Yahweh say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy, and gathered them out of the lands... from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. So we see that Christ's statement here is a matter of prophecy. And, of course, yet to happen at the time of Christ. The sons of the kingdom are those who pretend to have the law and the prophets, those in seats of authority in Jerusalem, but they are not necessarily Israelites. Actually, many of them are not Israelites, but they are usurpers, and that is why they would be put out. This passage should be cross-referenced to Revelation 2.9 and 
and Revelations 3.9, which describe those who claim to be Judeans and are not, they are of the assembly of the adversary. That's why Christ told them the kingdom would be taken from you and given to a nation worthy and bearing its fruits. Psalm 112, verse 10. The wicked shall see it and be grieved. He shall gnash with his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. Matthew chapter 8, verse 13. And Yahshua said to the centurion, Go as you have believed, it must be for you. And the servant was healed at that hour. This is indicative of the fact that our prayers are answered according to the sincerity of our faith. Therefore, as the centurion centurion actually believed it would be, in that manner was his prayer answered. Yahshua later explaining to his students said that if they only had faith without disputation, that they truly could move mountains. It is evident to me that none of us really have such faith, and we never have had, otherwise we'd be able to move mountains. Because even if we profess that faith with our mouths, our actions and our daily habits are still very much attached to the world. Matthew chapter 8, verse 14. Then Yahshua, coming into the house of Petra, saw his mother-in-law stricken and sick with fever. And he grasped her hand, meaning Yahshua, and the fever left her, and she arose and served him. Peter had a wife. Paul also relates that Peter had a wife, where he is speaking of himself. At 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. Paul asks, do we not have license to always have with us a kinswoman, a wife, a wife should be from your tribe, as also the other ambassadors and the brethren of the prince and Cephas. Cephas is the Hebrew form of the name Peter. The apostle Peter was married. Peter's, first let me say that um. And we see also here that he had a mother-in-law, and therefore he was definitely married. That's two witnesses, right? Peter's following Yahshua for three and a half years while he was married is illustrative of the priorities that we should all have. That service to the Word of God comes even before marriage. Something else this indicates is, is the, um, the hypocrisy of the so-called Catholic Church claiming that its so-called phony papacy is founded upon Peter. Peter was married. Popes are mostly sexual deviants and approve of sexual deviancy. They are antichrists. 
Matthew chapter 8, verse 16. Then upon its getting late, they brought to him many who were possessed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all those having maladies or illnesses, that the word would be fulfilled, which through the prophet Isaiah says, he has taken our weaknesses and bears our diseases. The quote from Isaiah is found at chapter 53, verse 4. Isaiah chapter 53 is a messianic prophecy in its entirety. To the Greeks, a demon was a spirit being that was perceived to be usually a lesser or inferior god or goddess. In the New Testament, the word is a spirit being of lesser power and authority than God. The two differing perspectives, if one understands the Old Testament, the two differing perspectives reflect very well the biblical assertions concerning the origin of idolatry and false religions. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, in the Enoch literature, it is found that unclean spirits originated with the spirits of bastards. That's explicit in the Book of Giants and, and some other ancient Hebrew literature. Literature quoted by Jude and by Peter. Specifically, they came from those bastards. It's said that they came from those bastards created by the watchers or fallen angels when they mixed their seed with other kinds, other species, not necessarily two-legged ones. Actually, it's explicit in the Book of Giants that they mixed their seed with all kinds of animals and created demons and monsters. Paul explains in Colossians chapter 2 where he talks about the worshiping of angels in, in quite esoteric language. And, and more clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that these demons are the sources of the world's false religions. Paul says that, quote, whatever the nation sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to Yahweh. In Psalm 95, verse 5 in the Septuagint, that verse reads, For all the gods of the nations are demons, but Yahweh made the heavens. The King James Version has only idols at that verse, but we see how that's interpreted. We also see the Greek word for demons in Isaiah chapters 13 and 34, where the King James has renderings such as satyrs and wild beasts. Instead, I would connect the wild beasts directly to the demons, just as Jude does, saying of the, those people who eat among us and share our communion unworthily, that they're like natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed. 
whenever you see a beast in your congregation, remember that he is a natural brute beast made to be taken and destroyed, according to the apostles. That these demons were real spirit entities was a belief of all of the earliest branches of our race. Today we have a tendency, because of our modern attitude, to dispute the existence of such things and to attempt to explain the unknown by searching for explanations in the natural world or in science as we perceive it to be. Quite often, the explanations fall short of the circumstances related by the descriptions of the events in question. While many strange events and apparitions may have a logical explanation in what we may consider to be natural phenomena, there are clearly some that do not. And these accounts are among them. The Gospel writers knew the difference between those who had maladies or diseases and those who were possessed by demons. Later in the chapter, it is evident that these demons even speak to those people whom they possess. The Greek language, and, and a lot of the early Greek literature, proves beyond doubt their own belief in demons. Greek culture is Hebrew culture. Is When you study the tragic poets, and the earliest poets such as Hesiod, and, and comments made about some of the earliest philosophers like Pythagoras. Comments, we, we don't have any writing of Pythagoras that survived, but comments made by some of the later writers concerning Pythagoras and, and other early philosophies of the Greeks, they, they certainly were, at the earliest points in their history, one and the same with Hebrew culture. And, and that's evident because most Greeks came from the Israelites, the Dorians and the Danans, specifically. Matthew 8, verse 18. Then Yahshua, seeing a crowd around him, had commanded to depart for the other side. And one scribe coming forth said to him, Teacher, I shall follow you wherever you should depart. And Yahshua says to him, The foxes have dens, and the birds of heaven have nests. He may be talking literally or allegorically there, it doesn't matter. But the Son of Man has not where he may lay the head. Then another of the students said to him, Prince, allow me to depart first and to bury my father. But Yahshua says to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury the dead for themselves. This, I believe, this last statement is an example that those of us who desire to follow Christ really have no part with those of us who do not, even if they're our own kin. Furthermore, those of us who do wish to follow him, may as, who do not, I'm sorry, who do not wish to follow him, may as well be dead. Without him, there is no life for any of us, and so we should all desire to follow him. Perhaps if that young man's father had chosen to follow Yahshua, he would be healed and he would not die. That's the idea there. Verse 23. 
And with his boarding into a vessel, his students followed him. And behold, a great commotion happened on the sea, so for the vessel to be covered by the waves, but he slept. And coming forth, they aroused him, saying, Prince, save us, we are being destroyed. And he says to them, What are you cowards, you of little faith? Then arising, he censured the winds in the sea, and there came a great calm. Then the men marveled, saying, From whence is this man, that even the winds and the sea obey him? The apostles were all led by the Spirit of God to follow him. And they all did so quite happily. Yet they still did not understand exactly who he was. And so they even marveled, even they marveled at his power. Verse 28. And upon his coming to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two men possessed by demons coming out from among the tombs met with him, exceedingly troublesome, so that not anyone is able to pass through, by through that road. The King James Version has here Gergesenes and not Gadarenes. The account of the events concerning the possessed man and the swine, which we read here, is given in three Gospels, here in Matthew 8, in Luke chapter 8, and in Mark chapter 5. In the King James Version, it is Gadarenes in Mark and in Luke. The name of the district in which this event took place is a matter of much dispute and speculation, even in the earliest times. Among the manuscripts, five different names appear, and each of those I will discuss here briefly, relying upon comments from Sayers. Greek English lexicon. Gadarenos of Gadara, a Gadarene. Gadara was the capital of the district of Parahia, according to Joseph. It was situated opposite the southern extremity of the lake of Gennesaret to the southeast, but at some distance from the lake on the banks of the river. According to Hieromax, it's 60 stadia from the city of Tiberias. The references, I'm sorry, Hieromax is 60 stadia from the city Tiberias, according to Josephus. Hieromax must be in Gadara. The references from Josephus's Wars and Pliny's Natural History and Sayer who also cites Josephus's Antiquities further on, the references all show that Gadara is a likely candidate, and is the most likely candidate for where this event took place, and that's why I did not follow the, um, the NA-27 here, which agrees with the King James Version. Well, well I'm sorry. Yes, it, the NA-27 here does have Gadara. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But the King James here has um, Gergesa and calls this the city of the Gergesenes. There's another 
there's another name, I should say. We don't know if it was a real town. Gazarenos, which it would be of Gazara, somebody who's a Gazarene. And, and this word appears neither in Strong's or in Thayer's, since it appears nowhere else in the King James Version of the Bible. It was actually the name of a town in the district of Ephraim, which was very far from the Sea of Galilee. And it appears several times in the Septuagint, not in the King James, in that form. Gerasenos has no strong number. Strong's didn't treat it. But it does have an entry in Sayer. A Gerasene belonging to the city Gerasa, the word appears in Josephus in, in his book of the wars of the Judeans, in Matthew eight twenty-eight, here in some manuscripts, in Mark 5, 1 in some manuscripts, and in Luke 8 in some manuscripts. It was attested to by Origen, the early Christian writer. But since Gerasa was a city situated on the southern part of Parahia, according to Josephus, or maybe in Arabia, depending on where the, uh, the border of Parahia was accounted by the Romans, we're not sure, that cannot possibly be the city here. And Thayer also cites an edition of Origen's writing, and, and that's from the 2nd century A.D. In the 2nd century A.D., Origen's writing shows that there was uncertainty concerning the name of this location where this event happened. The King James here has Gergesene, the word Gergesenos, meaning belonging to the city of Gergesa. The city of Gergesa is assumed to have been situated on the eastern shore of Lake Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee. But this reading depends only on the authority and the opinion of Origen, who was actually, Origen was, what was I believe he was a sincere and good Christian writer, but he was actually from modern-day France, from Gaul, right? Origen thought that the variants found in the manuscripts here must be made to conform to the testimony of those who said that it was formally a certain city, Gergesa, near the lake. But Josephus writes nothing of it and states expressly in Antiquities chapter 1, um, I'm sorry, book 1, chapter 6, that no trace of the ancient Gergeshites, the Gergeshites being mentioned as a Canaanite tribe in the, New Test in the Old Testament, no trace of the ancient Gergeshites had survived except the names preserved in the Old Testament. That's the testimony of the historian Josephus. So in Matthew chapter 28, according to Thayer, we must read Gadarenon, Gadarenes, and suppose that the jurisdiction of the city of Gadara extended quite near to the lake of Gennesaret. That's Thayer. That's why I have Gadarenes here in Matthew and not Gergesenes, as the King James has. There's one other name, Gergustanos, which is found nowhere, but appears in some of the manuscripts. When we compare the four accounts, even the, the NA-27 has Gadara here, but Geressa in the other three places, in, in Luke and Mark, where this account is given, that this is just... Um, to, to demonstrate some of the problems amongst the ancient manuscripts when something wasn't clear. In some of the codexes, Gadara appears in Luke, 
and 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 in others it, it appears in Matthew, and in others it appears in Mark, where, where Geressa or, or Gerdessa appear, and there is absolutely no consistency. And and we have three accounts where the name is mentioned four times because it appears twice in Luke, and and there's probably about fifteen different combinations, well, which is just incredible. But I believe it should always say Gadarenes, and and that's from the historical testimony and from the preponderance of the manuscripts, but not from either one of them. Based upon manuscript support and the antiquity and the perceived reliability of the manuscripts, I would have to have Gadara here, but Garessa in, in Luke and in Mark. So, so I have to turn to the historical records and, and always put Gadara where this event happened in the Gospels. Matthew 8, verse 29. And behold, they cried out. I'm sorry, after all that, we're talking about the men who were possessed by demons, right? Who live among the tombs and wouldn't let anybody pass by the road. And behold, they cried out, saying, What is it with us and with you, O son of Yahweh? That, that's like a, a um, that, that phrase is almost like an idiom, which means that we have nothing to do with each other. Have you come already to torment us prematurely? The demons recognized who Christ was. The demons knew that Christ was their enemy. Obviously, we learned from this that even the demons know that it is not the intention of God to convert somehow, to convert his enemies. It simply isn't. Now there was afar off from them a herd of many swine feeding. And the demons exhorted him, saying, If you cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they coming out departed into the swine, and behold, the whole herd rushed headlong down the bank into the sea and died in the water. And those feeding them, those who were employed in feeding the swine, those feeding them fled, and coming into the city, they reported everything, even the things concerning those who were possessed by demons. And behold, the whole city came out for a meeting with Yahshua, and seeing him, they exhorted him that he would pass over from their districts. In other words, they begged him to get lost. There's nothing in Scripture or in history that we can ascertain about the race of these people, it's just not clear. Mark tells us that this district was adjacent to Galilee. There were many settlements, settlements of Greeks and of Romans, settlements of white Syrians. As Strabo tells us that the Syrians of this time were indeed white. And there were even some remnant Israelites sprinkled throughout this area of Galilee, around the lake of Gennesaret, right? An examination of the Old Testament reveals that there were children of Israel living here who escaped the Assyrian captivity, not taken by the Assyrians, although they were nevertheless cut off from their relationship with God, right? So, so with all these different peoples living here, it, it can't really be told who these people of Gadara were with, with any true accuracy. What is obvious here, however, is that these people 
would rather continue to suffer with the status quo than to see change come even if it were for the better. They didn't really care about the men possessed by demons and the improvement of their position, of their condition. They preferred the world and they preferred their swine to the world, to the word of God. That to me is a very good portrait of most of our own race today. Most of our own people today would not trade a ham sandwich for the word of God. Most so-called Christians today would never trade in their swine for any amount of the truth. Matthew chapter 9. And having boarded into a vessel, he crossed over, and had come to his own city. And behold, they brought to him a paralytic, another paralyzed man, placed upon a cot. And Yahshua, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Have covered, son, your errors are forgiven. In Luke's account, when he returns from Gadara across the sea, there are multitudes of people anxiously awaiting him. Matthew really doesn't portray it like that. Both accounts are accurate. It's just the perspective of the writer that differs. Here, Yahshua does not necessarily assert that he is God, where he says, have covered, son, your errors are forgiven, having the authority to forgive this man of his sins. That's not the way this is worded. But the way his statement is worded reveals only so much as Yahshua's having knowledge of the fact that this man's sins are forgiven. The scribes took it the first way, that he was asserting to be God, although, of course, Christians should know that this is also true. But the words here don't necessarily state as much. The scribes automatically took this as Christ claiming to be God. And behold, some of the scribes said among themselves, this man blasphemes. And Yahshua said, seeing their considerations, for what reason do you ponder evil in your hearts? The Jew is the false accuser. Satan. The Jew is Satan, the adversary. For that reason, in the book of Revelation, he is called the accuser of our brethren. The Jew, the false accuser, is always quick to prosecute without actually understanding the facts of the matter. They have played that same role throughout all of history. Verse 5, For what is easier to say, these are the words of Christ, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise and walk. The Jew, the accuser, should have seen the power of the truth of God when Christ performed this miracle, and he should have praised it. Rather, when they saw Yahshua heal the paralytic, their hearts were even more hardened because then their own authority was challenged. We should never forget that the Jew would react in much the same way today. It would be no different. Matthew chapter 9, verse 6. But in order 
that you should know that the Son of Man has authority upon the earth to forgive errors. Then he says to the paralytic, Arising, take your cot and go to your house. And arising, he departed for his house. Then seeing it, the crowds feared and honored Yahweh for giving such authority to men. First, let me state that if a Jew healed a man of paralysis, he'd make a sideshow out of him in charge of mission. Here, correctly, the crowds did not honor Yahshua, who they perceived as a mere man, but rather they honored Yahweh, they honored God for the things which Yahshua had done. Men should never seek the honor of men, but rather all men should honor God for when they are able to help their brethren. Or when they see their brethren help. Verse 9. And Joshua passing from there sees a man sitting at the tax office called Matthias. And he says to him, follow me. And arising, he followed him. Here, Matthew, who wrote this gospel, is beckoned to be an apostle. I have thought in the past, and I still think, that it is possible that Matthew was a Levite. This is circumstantial, because in Hebrew tradition, as in many other of our Saxon nations at various times, and still in many families today, it was customary for a son to take up the vocation of his father. Therefore, it would make sense that Matthew, being a tax collector, had ancestors who were tax collectors, and in the ancient kingdom of Israel, it was the role of the Levite to collect the taxes and the tithe. Of course, so long a time later, it's not necessarily the case for Matthew, but it is plausible that he was a Levite. The publicans, or tax collectors of ancient Rome, occupied a solid position among the classes which were despised the most by the people. They were notorious for extortion, since they all had quotas to meet, and they would often take the short route and meet those quotas quite dishonestly. The more dishonest publicans worked partly for the government and mostly to line their own pockets since anything they connected that they collected in taxes over their quotas, the tax farmer, their bosses, got to keep. In any case, the publicans were seen as traitors back then, just as much as people today here in America see IRS agents as traitors, working against the working man for the sake of a tyrannical government. The same attitudes naturally appear among the people in a tyrannical government, no matter when or where that tyrannical government rules. Verse 10, and it happened upon his reclining in the house, then behold, 
many tax collectors and sinners, we see they group together, that's how much people despised tax collectors, having come reclined with Yahshua and his students. And the Pharisees seeing it, said to his students, for what reason does your teacher eat with tax collectors and wrongdoers? But he, meaning Yahshua, hearing it said, those who are strong have no need of a physician, but those who have maladies certainly do. Those who are weak certainly do need a physician. Now going, you learn why it is mercy I desire and not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, but the wrongdoers. The quote, mercy, and desire, mercy I desire and not sacrifice, is from Hosea 6, verse 6. Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew 5, verse 7, Blessed are those having mercy, because they shall be granted mercy. The Pharisees, the Pharisees were just as unforgiving religiously as the publicans were when it came to collecting taxes. <laughs> they had no mercy. One version of the Septuagint has it at Proverbs Chapter 16, verse 7, the beginning of a good way is to do justly, and it is more acceptable with God to do justly than to offer sacrifices. So we see the words of Hosea, which Christ quoted, are, are echoed in Proverbs 16. It is more acceptable with God than to offer sacrifices, meaning to, to offer mercy. He that seeks Yahweh shall find knowledge with righteousness, and they that rightly seek him shall find peace. Matthew 9, verse 14. Then the students of Johannes, the students of John, meaning John the Baptist, came forth to him, saying, For what reason do we and the Pharisees fast? But your students do not fast. And Yahshua said to them, The sons of the bride chamber are not able to hunger for as long as the bridegroom is with them. But the day shall come when the bridegroom has been taken from them, and then shall they fast. No one puts a patch of uncarded cloth upon an old garment, for it lifts its borders away from the garment, and it becomes torn worse. Fasting is a patch of uncarded cloth put upon the old garment of the prophecy in Christ. Nor do they put new wine into old skins, but if it is, the skins break, and the new wine pours out, and the skins are destroyed. Rather, they put new wine in their new skins, and both are kept together. Under Christ and the new covenant, the services to God would necessarily be changed. 
fasting today gets us nowhere spiritually. We've already been saved. It might do good for our bodies, but we can't save ourselves any more than Christ has already saved us. We're to do service to God in this age by loving our brother and taking care of each other, which we obviously need a little more of in this world. Stop loving the beasts. John the Baptist, this is the students of John who came to him, John the Baptist was still in prison, as we see from Matthew chapter 11, where it informs us that he still lives. His death is recorded in Mark chapter 6. And, and if you compare that, if you compare this account with Mark chapters 5 and 6, you'll see that it's evident that Mark's gospel is quite incomplete because Mark chapter 5 contains the story of the Gadarenes, which we see here in Matthew chapter 8. In Hosea chapter 2, Yahweh promises, Yahweh promises again to, to once again marry the children of Israel who are being divorced by him and cast out of his polity, his civil government, is what I mean by polity, right? Let me read verse 19. And I will betroth thee unto me forever. This is Hosea 2.19. Yeah, I will betroth thee unto me, meaning Yahweh, in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will betroth thee unto me in faithfulness. And thou shalt know Yahweh. Here, Yahshua Christ, calling himself the bridegroom, he asserts that he is Yahweh who would remarry Israel. There's no way around that. In John, chapter 3, verse 29, John the Baptist is said to have professed that he that has the bride is the bridegroom, meaning, and he's referring to Christ. But the friend of the bridegroom, which stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This is my joy. This my joy is therefore fulfilled. So Yahshua, being the bridegroom, he must be Yahweh having come in the flesh. Matthew 9, verse 18. Upon his speaking these things to them, behold, one leader having come worshipped him, saying that my daughter has just now died. But coming, put your hands upon her, and she shall live. And arising, Yahshua followed him and his students. They followed also. Luke here describes this man as Jairus, J-A-I-R-U-S, the leader of a synagogue. Matthew doesn't tell us what he's a leader of, right? In Luke chapter 8, verse 41. 
At this point, the narrative is broken by the story of the woman who grabbed the garment of Christ, which is briefer here than in Luke's Gospel, where it appears in chapter 8. Here's Matthew chapter 9, verse 20. And behold, a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years approaching from behind grabbed the hem of his garment, for she had said within herself, If only I may grab his garment, I shall be saved. Then Yahshua, turning and seeing her, said, Have courage, daughter, your faith has saved you. And the woman had been saved from that hour. Now, when we read that account in in Luke, we hear a long account about Christ wondering who touched him and and taking a, a couple of seconds at least to ask around and to find a woman. And we don't see that in Matthew. But that doesn't mean that the two accounts, and, and this is one example I'm raising purposely to illustrate this, that there are many examples of this in the Scripture. That does not mean that the two accounts conflict. What that means is that the two gospel writers each recorded a story from a differing perspective, right? Because Luke, and, and everything that Luke wrote was from, as Luke tells us, from somebody else's record, right? Luke didn't actually see any of this. Everything that Luke wrote was from other witnesses, and Luke's witnesses simply saw a lot more of the story than Matthew did. It's that simple. There's no conflict in the gospel. It's one witness recording things from his perspective, and then it's another witness recording things from another perspective. And one witness will see different things than the other witness saw, because he might be in a different part of the crowd. And one witness might record words which were more important to him than some of the other words, that the second witness might have a different take on things and, and might record words or remember wor- different words assigning different degrees of importance to them. The gospel has no conflicts. In, in that respect, what it has is it has four different perspectives on things. So simply because we see that one story is different in one gospel from in another, that doesn't mean that there's necessarily any treachery going on or or that the gospel is not true. It's just written from a different perspective. If we needed four witnesses to mimic each other, we would only need one gospel, right? Throw three away. The gospels, because they offer the same stories and their perspectives are so different. Because of that, I would say that proves to me that they are true. Now, the Jews have a whole different spin on things. The Jews try to tell us that there was one original gospel, and and there were many copies of it made, and and some writers copied this part, and some writers copied that part, and and it, it divided into many different tales, and, and what we have left is, is after all, the smoke cleared. And, and, and the Jews are just making that all up. It's just some bullshit. It's a pure lie. It's a pure Jewish, Ju- Jewish fable, the, the way they account for the differences in the gospel accounts. What it is, is it's four writers, some of them sitting down to write what they remembered years later, offering you basically the same testimonies from different perspectives, and, and they have different perspectives. So 
so they witnessed different parts of the same incident. And, and again, some of them assigned more importance to some sayings than others and, and high, highlighted or, or emphasized things differently than the other writers. That's all. It's that simple. And, and that's exactly what would happen. If any four of the people listening to this program saw the same event and one person sits down six months later and writes about that event and another person sits down, in, in the Apostle John's case, 60 years later, he, he recorded his his gospel at, at, after um, Patmos at Ephesus, according to all accounts, 60 years later. And so all of John's memories, most of the Gospel of John is based upon the last week of Christ. And, and there's, there's very little about the first three and a half years. And that's because John's perspective and, and his assessments and his priorities were probably drastically different after 60 years or, or after such a long period of time. Matthew 9, verse 20. And behold, a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years approaching from behind grabbed the hem of his garment, for she said within herself, If only I may grab his garment, I shall be saved. Then Yahshua, turning, seeing her, said, Have courage, daughter, your faith or your belief has saved you. And the woman had been saved from that hour. That word faith in Greek is the word pistis. And, and it's the common word among the Greeks that that we would use to, um, to to render the idea of belief, right? It, it doesn't necessarily have any special religious connotation, but the word faith can, can be substituted with the word belief. Just about everywhere it appears and, and still makes sense in English. Remember that Yahshua had said to the centurion that as his faith was, thus it would be with him. In other words, if he solidly believed that this would happen, then, then he granted that accordingly. The King James has it, as thou hast believed. Okay, we had a power blackout here. I'm sorry about the interruption. Couldn't do much about that. There have been bad thunderstorms all night up and down the East Coast. Well, in Pennsylvania and New York anyway. And, and I'm sure Matt has the board for me and he's probably having the same problems. Okay, Matthew chapter 9, verse 20. Let's try to wrap this up. And behold, a woman having a flow of blood for twelve years, approaching from behind, grabbed the hem of his garment. For she had said within herself, If only I may grab his garment, I shall be saved. Then Yahshua, turning, seeing her, said, Have courage, daughter, for your faith has saved you. And the woman had been saved from that hour. The word saved means preserved. And the word faith, as I explained before the power, was cut off, I believe. The Greek word pistis is the common word which indicates belief. It doesn't have any necessary religious connotation, right? 
Remember what Yahshua had said to the centurion, that as his faith was, thus it would be with him. Again, calling the woman daughter, whom he did not know in person, Yahshua discreetly asserts himself to be Yahweh, our father. Verse 23. And upon Yahshua's having come to the house of the leader, meaning the synagogue ruler, as we learn from the Gospel of Luke, where he gives the same account. He's a, he's a leader of a local assembly house of the Judeans, where they gathered to hear the law and the prophets at the weekly Sabbath, right? That's what the synagogue leader was all about. And seeing the flute players and the disturbed multitude, he said, Withdraw, for the child has not died, but sleeps. And they derided him. But when he had cast out the crowd, entering in, he held her hand and raised the child. And the report of her went out into that whole land. Evidently, they were mourning the girl by holding what we could call a wake, right? Well, note that Yahshua did not display any empathy for the crowd. Most people today would consider him to be rude. The mind of God is quite different from the mind of man. Verse 27. And with Yahshua passing from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Have mercy on us, son of David. The blind men already knew that Yahshua was an heir to David, the ancient king. And upon having come into the house, the blind men approached him, and Yahshua says to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They say to him, Yes, prince. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It must be for you according to your faith or your belief, right? The same as he told the Roman centurion. Recognizing our God and our sovereignty, I believe, is apparently the first step to curing our blindness. Verse 30. And their eyes opened. And Yahshua admonished them, saying, You must see that no one knows. He didn't want these people to go broadcast what he did to them. But they, having departed, made it known in all that land. This happens quite often in Scripture, that he asks people not to broadcast what he's done for them, and they go doing it. The example is that when we and Dow, when, when we are able to help our brother, we don't want them going and announcing it to the world. We want to give our gifts discreetly so that our Father may reward us dis discreetly, as Yahshua explained in the Sermon on the Mount. It, it seems to me that it happens quite often with, with it's a habit throughout those of our race that the things which we should profess 
which we should announce to the world, we do not. And the things which we should not profess, we announce loudly. Verse 32. Then upon their departing, behold, they brought to him a mute man possessed by a demon. And upon the demons having been cast out, the mute spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never has such been seen in Israel. But the Pharisee said, By the prince of demons he casts out demons. The Pharisees were obviously envious of his ability, and therefore they were quick to turn his good into evil, to portray it as evil. In John 10, verse 21, we read of a similar instance where others said, these are not the words of him that has a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? Verse 35. And Yahshua went around all the cities and villages teaching in their assembly halls and proclaiming the good message of the kingdom and healing every disease and every weakness. Let me say that in my translation, I don't like to write the word synagogue, right? I like to translate it. It means an assembly hall. And, and it's telling that the Jews, who, who profess to be um, Hebrew purists for the most part, the religious Jews, some of the key words that they use to describe objects in their religion are actually Greek words, right? Sanhedrin, that, that's not even a word. That, that's a, um, a corruption of the Greek word sunedrion, and it means to be seated together at council. That's the council. It's a Greek word. It's not a Hebrew word at all. And synagogue means together at the assembly ground, together at the place of assembly. That's what synagogue means in Greek. It's three Greek words. Soon, ago, and gase. And, and soon, ago, and gase is, is transliterated synagogue, but it's a Greek word. It's not a Hebrew word. And, and it simply means a place of assembly. But seeing the crowds, I'm sorry, and Yahshua went around all the cities and villages teaching in their assembly halls and proclaiming the good message of the kingdom and healing every disease and every weakness. But seeing the crowds, he had been deeply moved on account of them because they were troubled and downcast, just as sheep not having a shepherd. You know, first century Judea, was a lot like America and, and many of our Saxon European nations. First century Judea is a lot like America has now become, a nation of lost people, because their independence was stolen by a tyranny which seemed to be headed by a cabal led by the international Jew. Wherever they turned, either to the government or to the religious authorities who were working hand-in-hand -hand with the government, just as ours are today, there was no mercy and there was no justice, but there was only oppression, the same circumstance we have today. How could Rome be just when it had given over the kingship in Judea to a corrupt tyrant such as Herod? And from that time, the situation in Judea 
exacerbated. It got worse and worse. Until the coming of Christ, and forward until 70 AD, when it was destroyed. And that's what we have to look forward to today. Matthew chapter 9, verse 37. Then he says to his students, Great is the harvest, but the workers are few. Therefore it is necessary for the Lord of the harvest that he send out workers into his harvest. In other words, Christ needed his apostles to share in the labor of spreading the word of God and his message, and he was about to send them out to do so, and we shall see that next week when we discuss Matthew chapter 10. Thank you for being here tonight. This is William Fink and Chris beginning here on Top Shoe. Praise Yahweh.